Well, good morning. And, you know, I don't know what your background or experience is, but like the past few Sundays have been a very just special presence of the Holy Spirit in our services. And I don't want you to take that for granted. That doesn't happen all the time. God is doing something special in you. But how you respond to that presence determines everything. Um, we're in part five of our series, 10 Qualities That Move You From a Believer to a Disciple. So if you're Bible, you turn to Psalms chapter 19. The first week, Pastor Dylan preached on being passionately committed to following Jesus. The second week, Dr. Stanley preached on disciples having extraordinary love for other people. Then the third week, Pastor Anthony preached on a disciple has a servant's heart. And the last week, we talked about disciples are sensitive and submitted to the voice of the Holy Spirit. And today we're going to talk about being governed by the authority of God's word. And you're saying, why are we preaching about these 10 qualities? Because we believe these 10 qualities are the, the qualities that we're looking to grow and develop in our church. That these 10 qualities are here, our church is healthy, uh, we're fulfilling the mission, we're fulfilling everything God wants us to do. And one of those things is to take what's going on in this room outside of this room. So hopefully you can join us right after service at our Adopt-A-Block meeting. So it's an interest meeting, it's a real quick 15-minute meeting. Uh, Pastor Brown talked about that at the end of the service. But what is Adopt-A-Block? It's our opportunity to get outside of our comfort zones, our selfish zones, get outside the walls of our church, and go love on the community of West Florence. So it's a great, fun time. It'll take 15 minutes of your time, so come to that meeting afterwards. I don't know about you, but I usually drink honey every single Sunday morning to soothe my throat. And the reason for that is when I preach, years ago I had some issues with my, my vocal cords, and so it's helped me kind of coat my vocal cords. So I've also loved to use honey and tea and and chicken and fried chicken and hot sauce. We actually have hot honey at home. So I get the best of both worlds, hot sauce and honey all in one. And, and these days, though, honey is so popular, we take it for granted. When the Bible talks about honey, it actually closely ties it to gold. It was that valuable in the days of Jesus and the Old Testament and the New Testament that, that honey was so limited, so precious, that many times it was looked at at the same value as gold. And in Jewish tradition, there was three types of schools. So we have kind of elementary school, middle school, high school. Kind of the same way in the synagogue, there's three levels of learning for the Jews. The first level was Bet Sefer, not Bet Hefer, but Bet Sefer. Bet Hefer is where you go to school in Coleman. That's where Coleman has their, their cattle school. Bet Sefer was usually anywhere from six years old to 10 years old. Then from 10 years old to 12 years old, you have Bet Talmud, which actually means house of learning, where they would learn to correspond with question and answer. Then you have Bet Madrish, which is where they would actually grow. The best students only would actually go and learn from a rabbi in order to be a rabbi themselves. But the first school, Bet Sefer, was a school for 6- to 10-year-old kids. And on the very first day of class, they would take these 6-year-old students and they'd all have their slate. Now we have notebooks and Chromebooks and all this. But they'd have a slate. They would literally scratch out what they were learning on. They would take their slate. And they would literally pour honey all over the slate in which they were going to write the Word of God on. And they would just coat it with this honey. And honey is not like it was now where it's anybody can get it. You can get it at the grocery store or Publix or Walmart or Cracker. It was valuable like gold. They would just take it and actually waste it by pouring it all over their notebook. And they'd rub their fingers and write the word of God in this honey on this slate with their finger. And at some point the rabbi would say something like this, may the words of God be sweeter than honey on your tongue. May the words of God be sweeter than honey 
upon your lips. And so their first experience with the word of God was this sweet, pleasurable, enjoyable, desirable taste upon their lips. And it would begin their journey of learning the Torah. Many times in, in church, we think of Torah, we think of the Old Testament books, the Bible, we think of it as the law. They would not think of it as the law, but instruction. The instruction of God. The words of God are sweeter to my tongue than honey. The ways of God, the will of God, the promises of God, the covenant of God is sweeter than honey to my lips. The psalmist said it this in Psalm 119, how sweet are your words to my taste. Sweeter than honey to my mouth. At the age of six, they're connecting the sweetness of honey with the word of God. And they would begin their journey from six years old to ten years old, where they would begin to memorize. Everybody say memorize. The Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. All five books of the Torah, they would memorize by the time they were 10 years old. And the reason they memorized it is because it was sweeter to the lips than honey. And you may think, well, I don't think kids could do that today. They just, they don't have the attention span. They don't have the ability. They don't have the, the ways to memorize scripture like they did back then. Well, I would beg to differ because your kids may not be able to. But my kids can memorize every single TikTok video they've ever seen in their lives. My kids, your kids, the young adults, they can probably memorize every single episode of The Office they've ever seen. And so it's not a matter if they have the ability to memorize. The problem is we as a people, the things of the world have become sweeter than the words of God. And so what you desire, you will consume. And so these rabbis were trying to, to display or help these young boys and girls of God to realize that these words, if they shall not depart from your mouth, shall produce life. And as disciples, we have to get back to a place where we're governed by the authority of God's word. That his word is sweeter than honey. His, his words are more pleasurable than the latest episode of whatever the trendy Netflix special is. His words are more enjoyable than whatever the next TikTok trend is because these words are eternal and produce eternal life. And once we consume them, they change us from the inside out. If you would, stand to your feet as we read God's word together. Psalms 19, verse 7 through 11. It says that there's five kind of statements or truths about God's word in these few verses, but there's also five benefits of God's word. So there's five truths and five benefits that we as people, when we live out or partake in or read God's word, we get to benefit from. He says this, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Everybody say reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Everybody say making wise. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Everybody say rejoicing the heart. And the commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Everybody say, let me see. Those are four promises. And the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired than what? Gold, even fine gold, and sweeter than 
honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, but in keeping them there is great reward. Father, we thank you for your word. There's been passed down from generation to generation a legacy of truth, a legacy of eternal life, a legacy of covenant, a legacy of promises. But Father, it's not a book of the past. It's not a book just to be studied. It is a living and active and breathing revelation of who you are. It's a revelation of who we are to you. And Father, in these moments, I just pray for a stirring of the sweetness of your word upon our lips. That Father, in a day and age where people begin to attack your word, that we're going to have to trust and depend and be governed by your word, not by man, not by government, not by the Constitution, not by social media, not by the news. We have to come to a place where your word is the final authority in our lives. Father, create a hunger and stir us. Change us and transform us. Help us to revive our souls, rejoice in the heart, enlighten our eyes, and make us wise, O oh God. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Psalms 19, C.S. Lewis said it's the greatest poem in the entire Bible. When you look at the first few verses, one through six, literally the psalmist is talking about that the majesty of creation points to a creator. Like all of this, and he gets down to the word. So he goes from creation literally to the word of God. And so for us as people, we have to come to this place where the word of God, I'm going to read this, says God's word is truth. And disciples have made a decision that they must elevate the word above their feelings, opinions, and desires, even when it's difficult. That a believer may use the Bible as commentary for life, but a disciple uses the Bible as the words of life. So a believer will, will go to the Bible when they need it to, to enhance or impact their life. But a disciple lives by the authority of God's word, not their emotions, not their opinions, not their political biases, not their perspective. They realize that God's word is higher than my opinion. God's word is higher than my feelings. And they submit to it even when it's difficult. The problem with that is in America, we love the, we're fond of the Bible. We love the Bible. We just don't actually use the Bible. Like when you think about it, every hotel room you go to, you'll find a what? Bible. You go to most houses and homes, you'll find multiple Bibles. When you go to anywhere, a church, you'll find Bibles. The problem is statistics tell us we have tons of Bibles, just most Christians don't read it. Only about 30% of believers actually read their Bible. Out of that, 12% read the Bible every single day, about 16% maybe once a week, and outside of that, very rarely, meaning we want the government to run by this, we just don't want to run our own lives by this. We want to hold the government to a standard, we just don't want the standard, because once you read the Bible, it demands a change. And I think one of the reasons why is we have Bibles, we just don't actually believe it's true. For some, it's an outdated book. For some, it's, it's wisdom. For some, it's great teachings. But we don't actually believe they're actually the, the words of God. We don't believe it's the truth of God. And right now, in 2 Timothy 3.16, it says all Scripture. Everybody say all. All, not some, not New Testament, not all Scripture is breathed out by God. Profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. 
It's God-breathed human words. God breathed upon prophets. He breathed upon Paul. He breathed upon John. He breathed upon Matthew. And as he breathed upon them and revealed to them his will and his knowledge, their hands began to write what he inspired to them. And so the Bible is a book written, it's 66 different books, written by 40 different authors authors over 1,500 years and is maintained with no contradictions whatsoever. It's remained true. It's a prophetic book. It doesn't just tell us about the past. It tells us about the future. It's not just a book of philosophy. It's a book of practice and application. I know one uh, investor in Nashville. He's Dave Ramsey's mentor. He's built his entire business off the book of Proverbs. Literally, his entire business is built off the business model of the book of Proverbs. It's a book that produces life in every area you allow it to work. So it's not just a matter of what the Bible is. The problem is, if you don't believe it's true, you won't give it authority in your life. And we live in a day and age where authority is discounted. We don't want authority. We want individualism. But there's still a book that's words will outlast your opinion, that will outlast America, that will outlast our thoughts, that will outlast science, that will outlast philosophy. There's a book, and this is it. It has proven itself true over and over and over again. I believe this thing from the table of contents all the way to the maps in the back. I believe it from cover to cover. I believe everything in there that hasn't happened yet, it will happen at some point. I believe at the end of time when you look back after Jesus come back, when you read this Bible, you'll realize every single thing he said would happen actually happened. I just want to believe it on the front end, not on the back. And so there's this this concern that, well, science will, will catch up and it'll prove the Bible wrong. Actually, the more scientists learn, the more they actually believe the Bible. One scientist said if if a scientist comes to the idea of the Bible without having a presupposition that there can't be a God, all the data points to the fact there's a God. So some of the proofs are there's literary proof that the Bible is true. How many of you in high school read the book The Iliad and the Odyssey by Homer? Okay, none of y'all. Y'all must have went to public school. (laughs) Or Caesar's Gallic Wars or Homer's Iliad and Odyssey, like I said. So the way in literature they determine the authenticity of a book or a manuscript is to determine when the book was written, how many copies were made of that book to to kind of contrast the differences, and what the time span was between the original and the copies. Check this out. In Homer's Iliad and Odyssey, it was written around 900 B.C., but the earliest copy was written 500 years later. So it was written down, and then the first copy 500 years later. And there were only 643 original copies, and out of those, they were only 95% correct. Public schools have no problem letting kids read the Iliad and the Odyssey. They have no problem saying Homer wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey. But then you get to the Bible. The New Testament alone has over 25,000 copies. They were all written less than 100 years away from the originals. And out of those copies, when they compare those 25,000 copies to the originals, they're 99.5% accurate. In any other book, literature, they say, this is authentic. Yet schools teach that it's not scientific proof. The Bible for years in astronomy said, guess what? There is a beginning to creation. 
And Christians were mocked for hundreds of years from saying God created the heavens and the earth. There was a beginning, there will be an end. They were mocked saying, no, no, the universe has always existed. What do scientists believe now? In some form of a beginning, a.k.a. the Big Bang, the Bible was right well before science was ever right. Anthropology, the Bible claims all humans are of one blood descended from one man and one woman in Genesis chapter 3. But in 19th century, they argued, the biologists argued, that some races came from lower uh, lower level animals and evolved from them. But the Bible was right 2,000 years ahead of biology. And the Bible claims God created animals after their own kind. In the 19th century, scientists argued that animals evolved from one another, very different animals. But now biology confirms that creatures reproduce after their own kind. In geology, the Bible claims God destroyed the, the earth with what a Flood. They used to say, no, there's no way that happened. Now geologists confirm with the water erosion and fossils that, yes, there was a global flood. And if that's not enough, archaeology. All these archaeologists, all the Indiana Jones-type people are looking to disprove the Bible. Like all the money flows towards disproving the truth of God's word. Yet there's never been an archaeological discovery that has disproved the word of God. Yet. And it never will. Jericho. They said it was a myth. It's a mythical story. There was no Jericho. We can't find Jericho. There is no Jericho. In the 1940s, guess what they found? Jericho. And when they started to uncover Jericho, what they started to find was the city walls had fallen flat. Well, walls made of stone either fall out or they fall in, but this fell flat. And the book of Joshua says the walls fell down flat. Then they found full supplies and reservoirs of, of all their seeds and all these things. Why? Because the city was ransacked so quickly. Usually they'd surround a city, let them starve themselves by eating all their supplies and taking all their stuff, but not Jericho. They took it over in moments. And what else they found? They found the whole city was burned just like in the book of Joshua, except for one room. When they found this whole site, the whole city was ransacked and burned pretty much to the ground, except for one little corner, two-story house. And the book of Joshua says the whole city is ransacked except for one corner house because that's where Rahab the prostitute was and she spied for the Hebrews and she was safe. And the Bible told them well before they ever found the Dead Sea Scrolls. When they found the people thought the Bible, I've talked to Muslims about this, well, you know, the Bible's not in Hebrew. It's had to been misquoted or miscopied. When they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, they were able to compare our copies of Isaiah chapter 53 with these copies from 600 B.C., and it was 99.7% exactly the same. The only thing that was different in the point three was spelling. Historical proof. Anytime a totalitarian government rises up, one of the first things they do is begin to attack the Bible. Because then where the truth is, the truth brings Freedom, And so if they can get the Bible or the truth away, it produces slavery or bondage so the government can now be the God. And so the Nazis started burning and burning and burning and burning and burning and burning every single Bible they could find. But as soon as World War II was over and, and Americans and Europeans started going to Germany, you know what they found? More Bibles after the war than there was before the war. Because God's word will never pass away. Look at the prophetic promises of the Bible. 
It's prophetic, 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 prophetic. Just with Jesus and his messianic promises, messianic prophecies, there's over 300 prophecies of who the Messiah would be like. And they're very detailed prophecies. Even to the detail of he'd be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver and Judas betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver. The time frame he'd be born, the way he would teach through parables, the places he would go, the people he'd be connected, the way he would die, the way he'd be born, 300 prophecies. All 300 were fulfilled in Jesus. Dr. Stoner, who is who's not a cannabis doctor, he's actually a, a, a statistician, probably did smoke a lot of weed to take statistics, he wanted to kind of figure out what's the statistical probability that Jesus actually fulfilled these prophecies. So he took all 300, and they couldn't figure out the formula for 300, so they took eight, just eight of the 300 prophecies. Out of those, he said, what's the probability that one person could fulfill all eight of these prophecies? And the number they came up to was one to the 10 to the 17th power. That is a one out of 10 followed by 17 zeros. That's like the same probability the University of Tennessee has to win the national championship. It's, it's nearly, it takes the Messiah. <laughs> oh, Anthony, you better watch out. One to the 10 to the 17th power. One. The only way he could explain that, he said, if you take a silver dollar, and you spread one to the 10 to the 17th power out over the state of Texas, it would cover the state of Texas from border to border, border to border, two feet deep of silver dollars. If you were to take one of those silver dollars, paint it red on both sides, throw it in the middle, and then twirl the whole thing, mix them all up all over the place, take one blind man, blindfold him, put him in the middle, and say you can pick anyone you want to, the chances of him Finding that one silver dollar is one to the 10 to the 17th power. Yet Jesus fulfilled not eight, not nine, not 100, not 200. He fulfilled all 300 prophecies. When I tell you this book is true, there is no other book that can come close to that. And so the problem with most of us, we believe it's true for the big things. We just don't believe it's true for our lives. We believe it's true for the church and for the preacher. I just don't believe it's true enough for me to actually trust it with my decisions. I believe it's true for the big things at the church, but I don't believe it's true for my sexuality. I believe it's true for the government to, to live out this, but I don't believe it's true for my finances. No, either it's true or it's not. Either it's true or it's not. And this scripture gives us five truths and five benefits. I, I think that's cool that it gives us five truths about the Bible but also attaches right to them five benefits. So the first word is this. The word of God is perfect. Everybody say perfect. It's perfect. Living by its principles puts our lives back in order. The psalmist used the word revives our soul. That word revive actually means to restore out of chaos or disorder. So to revive your soul means to, to put everything back in its proper place, to, to restore a life that was living out of order to put it back in proper order because God is the creator. He knows the proper order for our lives. And, and right now in our culture, many of our lives are in disarray. 
They're disordered. Their priorities are messed up. Our finances are out of order. Our houses are out of order. Our marriages are out of order. Our government's out of order. Our, our relationships are out of order. Our sexuality is out of order. Our decision-making is out of order. And it's because there's a way that seems right to man that leads to death, but there's a way that God shows us that is perfect that leads to life. And so when you live by this word and its principles, it actually brings everything back into its proper alignment with your creator. When I say his way is perfect, mine is not, and I begin to live out of his principles instead of mine, my finances begin to get lined up. And to be honest, like it talks about the, the borrower being slave to the lender, and we're in a season where that's become more and more true the more and more checks the government sends out. We live in a day and age where it talks about saving money up for your generation to generation where it's going to be more and more true when our, gener- our kids and our grandkids are going to have a whole backload of debt upon their lives. And so these principles are true. And it's like this, I, I believe there's two types of people, two types of people in the world. And everybody fits into one of these two categories. When you buy something new, like we bought a new grill, uh, I think in April or May, so we bought one of the pellet grills, which has been a life changer for our family. When you buy it, there's two types of people. There's one group of people that goes through everything, finds the little booklet that's called the manual. The other group of people look at the picture on the box. There's only two types. And everyone in this room fits in one of the two categories. So the manual was created by the people who designed, engineered, manufactured, and and invented whatever product it is you have. Like they know everything about the way it's supposed to work. They know every detail about where go, what goes where and at what place and at what time, step one, step two. But then there are other people that look at the picture. They don't really know the, the way, but they have an idea of what it's supposed to be like. And so instead of looking at the manual or the owner's manual or the instructions or the precepts or living by its principles, they begin looking at a picture. And we don't have a picture of Jesus to look at. We only have the words of Jesus to follow. And so what happens is since there's not a picture, you begin to look at other pictures like Kanye West and Kim Kardashian. You start building your marriage off what that looks like. And next thing you know, your marriage is falling the same direction as their marriage. You start looking at the Joneses and looking at that picture instead of living by the owner's manual and your finances start looking like theirs where you're in more debt now than you were two years ago. See, when you start looking at the picture, the pictures constantly change. And God has given you an instruction manual, custom designed because he created your life, he designed your life, He gave you purpose in your life. He saved your life. He redeemed your life. And now he's giving you an instruction on how to live out your life to the best possible case scenario. But you have to trust it. Two, the word of God is sure. Everybody say sure. Trusting in its direction gives us wisdom to take our next steps in the right direction. Wow. Following Jesus is not about raising your hand and getting saved. It's about following him from here all the way into eternity. Like he knows the way into heaven. He says, I am the way. Meaning he's going to show us the way to get there. But I have to trust 
that he's leading me in the right direction. He'll give me wisdom to navigate difficult scenarios and moments. But I have to trust that it's actually him that's leading me. And the darker the world gets, the more wisdom we're going to need to take our next steps. See, it's easy to make Christian decisions when everyone around you has Christian morals. It's easy to do right when everyone in your friend group has the same morals you have. But when you live in a culture who no longer has Christian values, they have secular values, it's very easy to follow them instead of following the wisdom of God if you don't know the wisdom of God. The darker the world gets, it gets more difficult to take the right steps and navigate the traps of the enemy because you can't see in the dark unless you have a light with you. In Psalms 119, it says this, your word is a what? A lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Meaning the darker the world gets, I'm not concerned with who's in the government, who's in the White House. I'm not concerned with anything. Because no matter how dark the world gets, I have a light that will lead me from here to eternity. I have a light that will help me lead my family through all the chaos of a secular culture. I don't need the government to, to mandate my morals because my morals are found in this book and not the Constitution. And I'm going to trust in this book to lead me and guide me. But the problem is we have our own way and we want, we want God to bless our way instead of getting in his way and letting him bless that. It's like this old school Navy commander, which he already messed up by joining the Navy instead of the Air Force. No one wants to be on a boat for two years. Go to the Air Force. So he's a Navy commander. He's coming up. There's this huge light in the fog that's coming towards them. He gets on the big speaker. He says, move 10 degrees south or we're going to crash. Over another speaker, the light says, no, you move 10 degrees north or you're going to crash. Navy commander gets on the Speaker, he says, I don't think you know who I am. He was the highest ranking Navy commander in the Navy. He says, I don't think you know who I am. I'm Captain so-and-so. I'm commanding you to move 10 degrees south or we're going to crash. The voice says, no, no, no. I don't think you understand. You move 10 degrees north or you're going to crash. Finally, this Navy commander is just fed up. He says, I don't think you heard me correctly. I'm the highest ranking official in the United States Navy. And if you don't move 10 degrees south, we're going to crash. And the voice of the speaker says, I don't think you understand. I'm the lighthouse. <laughs> and if you don't move 10 degrees north, you're going to crash. This book is our lighthouse. And to be honest, God does not care what your title is what your degree is, what your experience is. You can't tell God to move 10 degrees north or 10 degrees south. If you do not live by the light of his word, you will crash over and over and over and over and over. His word has authority, not to punish, but to make sure we don't hit the rocks of the world. And for some of you, you come to that dead end of the lighthouse. There's a word I had during worship for somebody in this room. I didn't want to embarrass them. But every time you come to a dead end, you think it's because you messed up. And when Pastor Brown's given the word about the prodigals, that God is a God who chases after us. God has been chasing after you with love, not with judgment, but with love. And every time you come to a dead end, you think it's because you're a failure. But God has allowed you to come to those dead ends because that is the beginning of you recognizing who he is in your life. 
And so many times on a lighthouse, we think it's the dead end. No, that's where you start getting to the promised land. You're off the rough seas, you're out of the storms, and you finally get to the promises, but you have to obey his voice. Number three, the word of God is right. Everybody say right. It's like my wife, it's always right. Learning its promises gives us hope, encouragement, and joy because we know his word never fails. Like his word is always right. Like I don't have to question whether God's promises are going to come true. I know they're going to come true. And to be honest, not to be political, but in the age of fake news, thank God for good news. You know what I'm saying? Like, thank God. When you never know which news to trust and which news you can't trust, like, I can always trust what God says in this word. I've gotten off social media completely. You know what's happened? I have more time, and my attitude is much better. While I'm not filling my mind or my heart with fake news, I have more time to take in the good news. And people right now, they don't need more fake news. They need good news. And this is good news. Matthew 24, 35. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Isaiah 40, verse 8. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And my favorite, Isaiah 55, 11. So shall my word be that goes out of my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Meaning God's word will prove itself true. That when God gives you a promise, it's not a matter of if, it's only a matter of when. When God says something's going to happen, I promise you it's going to happen. I know they've been saying Jesus is coming back for 2,000 years. He said it. It's not a question of if. It's only a matter of when. If God gives you a promise about your kids that they strayed away, but you stand on the promise that I raised them in the admonition of the Lord, they shall not part away from this. I promise you, if he gave you the word, it's going to come to pass. If God gave you a word about your healing, I promise you it's going to come to pass. If God gave you a word about your marriage, I promise you it's going to come to pass. Now, the time frame may be difficult, but I promise you the word of God will prove true. And there's seasons in your life, if you don't have word in you to stand upon, you will fade away and sink like sands upon the river. There are seasons in your life that all you have, people may pass away, people may fade away, people may turn their backs, people may betray you, but if you have a word, you have more than enough to keep on standing. And you have to get in the word to grab hold of a word, and once you grab hold of a word, do not let go. Hold on to it till it comes to pass. And number four, the word of God is pure. Reading it changes our perspective from the way we see life to the way God sees life. Reading God's word changes our perspective from the way we see things to the way God actually sees things, created things, and designs things to be. Because when we read the word, when we see life, we all naturally have a selfish motive. Like when, I, when I'm in a situation, if there's conflict, I always think I'm right. I never think somebody else is wrong. When I have an opinion, I always think my way is right and everybody else's opinion is wrong. We all naturally do that. We all naturally see through our own selfish lens. But when you read the word, it changes your perspective from what you see to what God sees. It changes your conflict from how you see it to how God actually sees it. That you see it from they hurt me, God sees it from forgive them. You see it from being right or wrong, God sees it from being righteous or unrighteous. You see it through my way. God sees it through his way. And I am, to be honest, like perspective is difficult for all of us. 
But until we get enough word of God in us to change our perspective, we're always going to be full of conflict, division, and strife. Because the word of God is designed to correct. I am blind as a bat. Like, I am so blind. I take my contacts out at night. I wear my glasses. Toy makes fun of me. She thought somebody's breaking in like two years ago. And she's like, somebody's breaking the house. You need to go shoot them. Right? So her response is not mercy. It's always shoot first, you know, pray for them later on. So you need to go shoot them. I'm like, well, I can't see. I gotta. So I'm in the bathroom trying to get my contacts in. She's like, what are you doing? You need to go shoot them. I'm like, babe, I can't shoot if I can't see. Like if I knock my glasses off the nightstand, literally I have to be like, babe, could you please help me find my glasses? I can't see to find my glasses. Why? My perception is misconstrued. And so my glasses correct my vision so I can see the way God wanted me to see. So my contacts actually give me 20-20 vision. Without them, it's 20-nothing. It's the same way with our spiritual insight. Without the word of God, you're 20-nothing. Like you can't see what God is actually doing. Like you can't see in the middle of your struggle, you can't see that God uses trials to produce endurance and faith and love in new life. In the middle of what seems like death, you don't realize he's producing resurrection. Why? Because you can't see correctly. But when you have the word of God and you begin to read it, it changes your perspective. It corrects your vision so you can see, wow, I didn't realize that just like Joseph was thrown in a pit, just like Joseph was sold into slavery, just like Joseph at the enemy's life, he said, God meant it for good. Now I can see what God is trying to do. The Bible corrects our vision because our vision determines our direction. Our direction determines how we're going to live in the last one. Number five, the word of God gives us great warnings, but also great rewards. Gives us great warnings. There's warnings throughout the scriptures, but also gives us great rewards. In the scripture, actually, in Psalms 19, it says, Moreover, by them your servant is warned. Talking about himself. He's warned. But in keeping them, there is great reward. I mean, this word, it has warnings. But attached to those warnings are incredible promises of incredible rewards for those who listen, trust, and obey, and live out the principles of the word of God. It's like I heard a, a pastor give an illustration you see, the man was getting ready to jump off this, this bridge. It's like a 30-story-type you know, 30 bridge, concrete on the bottom. But the guy had a problem. He started thinking, well, is this legal? Well, if you're committing suicide, what, what difference does it make if you're going to get a ticket or not at the bottom? He said, well, is this, is this legal? Like, is, is this against the law? Is this illegal? Is this legal? You know, is it, is it right or is it wrong? Like, he's starting to question himself. And the question wouldn't be, is it legal? The question would be, is it life? See, the promises of God are not always right or wrong or legal or illegal. It's life or death. See, when I read the word of God, I don't look at it as a threat. If, if you don't do this, you're going to die. I look at it as a warning of saying you're going the wrong direction. I look at it as I'm standing on top of the bridge. Some of you, I hate when we record stuff. Some of you come from Church of Christ backgrounds. And I'm not saying this to be derogatory. But you've been ingrained that the word of God is not sweet like honey. It's sour like vinegar. That when you read the word of God, it is, is this legal or illegal? And God is speaking to you saying, no, it's about illegal or legal. It's about life or death. 
Like we're just standing on the edge of that cliff. It doesn't matter if it's law or not the law. What matters is, is this God's perfect life for me? And all these warnings, we could hit all the different categories. Financially, some of you don't give, you don't tithe. That's between you and God. But the question is, is it law or is it not law? Is it legal or is it illegal? One produces life, the other one doesn't. Financially. We could talk about sexuality. One produces life, the other one does not produce life. Like it's not a matter of legal or illegal, it's about life or death. And when you get to this point in the Word of God, yes, it has great warnings to keep me away from things that produce death in my life, but it also produces incredible, incredible rewards. Deuteronomy chapter 30 says it this way. See, I've set before you today life and death, good and evil. It's amazing. God just says, I'm laying it out there for you. Like, I'm laying it out. You get to choose. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord of God will bless you in the land you are entering to take possession of. But if your heart turns away, and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare you today that you will surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. But I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you today that I've set before you. Everybody say sets before you. Set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring or your children may live. Loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him. For he is your life and length of days that you may dwell in the land of the Lord, swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give them. See, one of the misconceptions with the word of God is it's a threat. If you do this, God's going to curse you. No, he says, listen, I'm setting it before you. I'm setting my promises before you. When you live by them, there's life. When you live by the ways of the world, there's death. When you live by my promises, there's blessing. When you live by the promises of the world, there's curses. You pick. See, that changes the way you see scripture. So now I read scripture. I'm looking for the warnings. I'm looking for the warning. I want to know God. In what direction produces death for my family, for my marriage, for my finances, for my, my church? God, in what direction? And where's the life? Where's the promises that you have for me? See, God is not a God up there setting down curses from heaven. He's producing life, and he's saying, choose it. Choose life. Choose it. He didn't say choose death. He didn't, in a hyper-Calvinist way, say, no, you get life, you get death, you get blessing, you get curse. That's not God. God says, this is the plan. Choose life. God's plan is always life and blessings, and he gives us the way to them. He literally gives us the way to choose life. If you would bow your heads and close your eyes just for a moment. The first day of Betsifer, the rabbi literally wipes honey all over these little six-year-old slates. They begin writing the word of God onto these slates just like finger painting in kids' ministry or in preschool. They begin just finger painting in this honey on this slate, writing out, I set before you life and death, 
blessings and curse. Choose life. Then Rabbi would say, take your finger and taste that honey. May the words of God be sweeter to your tongue than honey itself. May it be more valuable than gold. For from it flows life, promises, covenants, hope, encouragement, blessings, financial prosperity, peace, promises of healing, promises of restoration for marriages, like literally everything. The instruction manual has everything. How to restore your marriage. How to restore your finances. How to find hope in a chaotic world. How to raise your children. Everything you need is in it. But if it's bitter like vinegar, you'll never partake. But if you begin to see it as sweeter than honey, you begin to consume God's word every day. And as you do those benefits that God promises in this verse, begin to radiate and flow out of your life. But you have to let the word of God have the highest authority. Not your traditions, not your background, not your denominational doctrines, not your political leanings, not your social justice calls, but the word of God. And as you do, and you submit to it, everything else begins to flow from there. So real quick, every head is bowed, every eye is closed. Just a quick moment. I know we had a little altar call earlier. I just want to pray for two things. One, I said, you know what? The word of God has always been bitter to me, like vinegar. I got abused by, I, was, I had church hurt. People used it to manipulate. People used it to control. People used it, you know, to punish me or correct me or discipline out of me. And it just, I don't see it as producing life. And right now, I just want God to help make it sweet to me again. Is that you? Every head is bowed. Every, if that's you, just slip your hand up real quick right where you are. Thank you. Anybody else? Thank you. Put your hands down. Second question. I said, you know what? As Pastor Brown was talking about prodigals, I realized I am a prodigal. Maybe you, you met Jesus as a teenager. Maybe you met him as a, in kids' ministry or Sunday school class, but you have a whole season that you're away from God. And you feel like God is calling you back home. And he's like that father in the prodigal son story. He's just standing there running towards you. He doesn't ask what you did. He didn't ask what you did wrong. He didn't ask you why. He just embraces you as you, you come towards him. He said, that's me. Like, I need the Father's embrace. I, 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 need, to, I need to run back home. That's you. I'm not going to have you come forward, stand up. I just want you to raise your hand so I can see you real quick. That's you. Raise your hand real quick. Thank you. Anybody else? A couple. Thank you. I'm going to pray. If you raise your hand for that second question or during the, uh, when Pastor Brian was up, I want you just to, after service, in the connection point area in the main lobby. They have just a gift for you to help you kind of navigate this journey because it's not a decision. It's a commitment to follow Jesus. Father, we bless you in this place. And we thank you for your word that never, ever fails. And Father, when you send your word out, it produces exactly what you've purposed it to do. And Father, I pray for us as a people, no matter our backgrounds, those that are Baptist or Methodist or Church of Christ or those who are charismatic or Pentecostal. Father, I pray that we are governed by your word. Your word becomes truth to us. We can elevate your word above our opinions, our feelings, our doctrines, our biases. And Father, just like those young six-year-old Jewish students, that Father, your word will be sweeter than honey upon our lips. 
And we'll begin to dig in your word each day, even if it's just a verse or a chapter a day. Begin to consume your word and begin to obey and trust in it with everything we have. In Jesus' name.